Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. We are in John 3, and uh, John 3 is probably one of the most infamous chapters in the entire Bible. It uh, is home to the most famous verse in all of Scripture in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The most oft-quoted verse outside of Jesus wept. (laughs) Um, And so that's what we get to look at. Now, most of us are familiar with that verse in some way, and maybe we're not familiar with the entire context of the verse, but we are familiar with the reference in some way. Actually, there was this massive movement when I was younger. It was a John 3.16 movement. It's actually called Sign Ministry. Now, for those of you who aren't quite sure what sign ministry is, it's exactly what I just said it was. People would make signs and hold them, and that was the extent of their ministry. Um, and so uh, there was one guy, a famous guy, uh, known as Rainbow Man, and I think he was back in the late 80s, early 90s, and Rainbow Man would consistently wear a rainbow clown wig and sit in the end zone of, uh, of football games, and he would hold a sign that said John 3.16. I think I have the picture of, uh, of Rainbow Man. That's Rainbow Man, right? Um, I mean, if that guy's not bringing somebody to Jesus, I don't know who is, right? Um, but, uh, but so that was his thing, and he would go, and he would hold John 3.16 uh, up there, and, and this movement kind of continued to, uh, to take place. And so there's a, a couple more that I have, the next one uh, up there. So that's another one, John 3.16 in the end zone. And these are, you know, regardless of how they dress, relatively smart people. Right, because they're sitting in the end zone, they got the camera angle right. They know somebody is going to be kicking a field goal at that port at, at that point at some time during the game. And so, hey, I got a sign put up, and they're going to like it or not. And then the last one, I had to sneak a uh, Giants World Series win in there as well. Uh, hey, Dodger fans, sorry. Uh, John 3.16, as the Giants are winning their World Series in 2012. So just to rub the salt in the wound a little bit more, Dodger fans. Um, but, uh, but this isn't, like, like, even if you're not familiar with what the verse actually says, you probably, in some way, shape, or form, recognize that phrasing of John 3.16. It has become a cultural norm, a cultural phenomena. It has gone outside the walls of the church. And so we get an opportunity to dig a little bit, a little bit deeper into that. So because that, we need to go back to two weeks ago prior to, uh, to Gilbert and, uh, and talk about John chapter two. Because in John chapter two, we have this story of Jesus flipping over tables, right? He goes to temple courts. Uh, there's money changers. They're trying to make money off of a, a ritual sacrifice they're required to do by law. And so Jesus comes in, he has a whip, and he's just like cracking that whip and throwing tables over, and he's going nuts. And part of the audience that was there to see him 
were Pharisees, were these Jewish people there to see exactly what it was that, uh, that Jesus was doing. And, it's, and really, in the story, it's a pretty impressive display of authority that he has going on. So today, as we pick up in John 3, verse 1, uh, the reason I want to mention what we talked about two weeks ago is to ensure that we understand that the Pharisees were there. And as we pick up in verse 1, we recognize that the man named Nicodemus, a man named Nicodemus is going to come and see Jesus in the middle of the night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And my guess is, it doesn't say it explicitly, but my guess is, is Nicodemus saw Jesus flipping over tables, driving out money changers, challenging the status quo of what was going on. And because of that, he decided to seek out Jesus and see what it is that this guy actually had to say. So we're going to pick up here in verse one. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not him. So a couple things uh, that we need to pull out here, okay? Jesus is still in Jerusalem for, uh, for the Passover celebration. And so while he's there, a guy named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, so, uh, a group of people called the, uh, the Sanhedrin, he's part of the Sanhedrin, uh, came and he saw Jewish. He really is, would have been kind of like a Jewish celebrity, like in the same way that regardless of your feelings about these different people uh, in politics, if you saw a well-known politician on the street, you would recognize them. Now, you may completely and totally ignore him depending on your stance in politics, but that being said, you would recognize him. And this is the same type of guy that we have here because the Sanhedrin really was a ruling council, meaning that they are the ones who established laws for the Jews underneath Roman rule. So as long as the Romans said it was cool, they were okay to do it. And so he was a member of that group. So regardless of the reason, though, uh, that he came, and specifically he came at night. So regardless of the reason he came at night, I have a couple theories as to why he came at night. One, he was afraid that people were going to see him, right? And all of a sudden, uh, all of these people who were against who Jesus was comes, they see, or, or they, they see Nicodemus come to visit Jesus. And because of them, he gets written off. He is no longer has the title and the status that he once had. Maybe partially um, it was simply he wanted to get access to Jesus. And Jesus is a pretty popular dude, especially after coming in the temple courts, flipping over tables, all of that stuff. And so because of that, he's like, look, if I'm going to get to Jesus in some way, shape or form, it's nighttime. Nobody seems to bother him at nighttime. I'll go and see him. But regardless of what the reason was, right out of the gate, Nicodemus asks Jesus an incredible question while at the same time showing him a massive amount of respect by calling him rabbi. Now, rabbi in, 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 in Hebrew, a lot of people assume that rabbi simply meant teacher. Well, that's part of it. It does mean teacher. But the other side of the idea of rabbi, it's a teacher and a chosen one. So he's calling him chosen one as well as teacher. There is an authority associated with calling somebody rabbi. In the same way that, that today, uh, calling somebody pastor or elder or something like that in our church context would have held some sort of authority with it. 
And so that's what we have going on here. So we have a person, a, 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 a Pharisee, who is indeed a rabbi, also turning to Jesus and calling him rabbi. Meaning, regardless of how he felt about Jesus, regardless of how he felt about him flipping over those tables and doing all that stuff, he still recognizes that Jesus was an authority figure. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was a chosen one and a rabbi. So we have this Bible scholar in Nicodemus verifying how good of a teacher Jesus is. And he even tells him that he knows he's from God. That's a big deal, especially for those of you who have read through, who, who've read through the gospel accounts and recognize that, man, if there is an antagonist in this story outside of Satan, it's the Pharisees, right? Jesus is always correcting Pharisees over and over and over again. And so for this Pharisee to then call Jesus the, uh, someone who is sent from God, that's an incredible recognition of Jesus's authority and Jesus's power on earth. So Jesus tells him though, continue on. Jesus tells him that no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is a conversation they have, which to us makes sense, right? All of us who are Christians in here, when we say, oh, I'm a born again Christian, right? That's the Christianese vernacular of saying, I committed my life to Christ. I'm born again, I'm born again. And so for us, this is normal. Well, this is where that phrasing comes from. The idea of being born again is this story and obviously the gospel moving forward as well. But to Nicodemus, this is brand new information. This is brand new slang. You parents out there with junior hires and high schoolers or even you grandparents out there with junior hires and high school grandkids, right? And they come, came home and they started saying words like fleek. And you're like, what does fleek mean? Right? I still have no clue. You guys, are la you guys aren't laughing because you don't, you've never even heard that word before. And some of you are going to look it up on your phone. And that's okay. But you start hearing words like fleek or, or maybe going back a little bit. Man, that's so bad. And bad actually means good. And that's really confusing, right? So we don't even understand. So the vernacular here doesn't seem to make sense to Nicodemus. So Jesus, though, tells Nicodemus how to see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus how to see the kingdom of God. And we do have a slide for that one, I believe. Jesus tells Nicodemus how to see the kingdom of God. But in 3.3, it says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This would have been an incredibly important distinction for Jesus to make to Nicodemus. Because again, Nicodemus was a what? Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And Pharisees, by definition, were people who thought they could earn their way to heaven simply by doing good and not doing bad. That's what Pharisees thought. They're like, hey, works-based, right? Like, as long as I'm following the law, the law set out in the Old Testament, then I'm doing the right thing. And so this is weird for Nicodemus. Jesus is flipping the script on him. All of a sudden, he's saying, hey, look, Man, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be reborn. And so to a Pharisee, he's probably a super literal guy. He's like, okay, I have to be reborn. There is a law probably that says I have to be reborn. Maybe I missed that one, but I need to be reborn. And so Nicodemus starts going into the whole idea of like, well, hold on, time out. I need to be reborn. How, that's not physically possible for me to be reborn. 
I can't go back into my mother and then be reborn again. And if I'm Jesus at this point, I'm a little bit frustrated, right? I'm frustrated at Nicodemus because I'm like, time out. Nicodemus, come on, bro. You know better than this. Like, let's pick up on some context clues here in some way, shape, or form, right? Because Jesus is obviously talking about something way bigger than physically going back into his mother and then physically being reborn out of his mother. But him as a Pharisee, we get the same rap sheet today. Christianity gets the same rap sheet today, oftentimes that Pharisees got back then, right? If you've ever heard that, man, the Bible is just a bunch, of, a bunch of rules of things that I'm supposed to do, right? The Bible is uh, just a book about a bunch of things that I, I can't do. If I'm a Christian, then I can't have fun because I'm not allowed to do all of these things. Why would I, why would I listen to those things? Why would, I, why would I follow Christianity if all it is is a bunch of rules that I'm supposed to do and not do? And so when we're looking through the eyes of, uh, of Nicodemus in this story specifically, we need to recognize that, man, our faith is a whole lot more than a rule book. Our faith is a whole lot more than things that we are supposed to do or we are not supposed to do. And that's what Jesus is going to try to explain to him here. So Nicodemus doesn't get it. So then Jesus actually doubles down and he begins using language Nicodemus may better understand. So in short, Jesus re-explains to Nicodemus how to enter the kingdom of God. He's just like, all right, time out, look. John 3, 3, it goes back and it says, you know, you, you have to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He plays the dumb card. And then Jesus is like, all right, look. Verse five, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus here, he's trying to do his best to make Nicodemus understand that he is talking about being spiritually reborn, spiritually reborn. And the only way to be spiritually reborn is through someone who is what? Spirit. In the same way, the only way to be physically born is through someone who is what? Physical, all right? And so that's what Jesus is trying to make Nicodemus understand here. He's like, look, this physical side, forget the physical side of things. You're being born. If you try to go back into your mom, she's gonna get real hurt. But spiritually speaking, if you are going to be reborn, this is what it is that you have to do. So Jesus continues to explain that, that in order for that to happen, we need to be born of man as well as born by the spirit. So in other words, especially for our context, we need to repent and humble ourselves before God. And that's the physical side. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is going to both regenerate and seal you from the inside out. So the Holy Spirit does this work inside of us. We can't explain it. There's doctrines that do their best to try to explain it in the same way there's doctrines that do their best to try to explain the Trinity, okay? Have fun reading them. You'll go cross-eyed and you'll land back where I did. Uh, simply, man, God's a pretty incredible God and I don't know exactly how this works, but it just seems to work. And so he sends his son or he sends the spirit inside of us. We are regenerated, we're sealed, we are reborn at that point. So yes, Nicodemus, yes, Christians, yes, non-Christians, we have a responsibility in the way that we live our lives to become more holy. But there's an entire other piece of God making you new that you can't do on your own. 
It's impossible. I've talked about the idea of white knuckling things before, right? Like I'm gonna white knuckle this as hard as I possibly can until I can do it right. I'm gonna white knuckle this sin out of my life. I'm gonna pull myself up on my bootstraps as hard as I can until I can get this thing right. Whatever metaphor that it is that you wanna use. But simply speaking, there is simply things in our lives that we cannot do apart from God and being saved is one of them. The main one. We can't do it. It is impossible for us to get to heaven simply by being better, simply by doing more things. Man, you can, you can cut a check to King's Gospel Mission or go, go volunteer with them once a week, but if God hasn't done a work in your life and you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you because of the fact that you've been reborn, you're still not getting there. I mean, I'm sure Dave will still take your check, but you're not getting there. And that's the simple truth of what he's trying to explain here to Nicodemus. So verses three through eight are all dealing with this idea of kind of regeneration, coming into the family of God and some of the mysteries of the Holy Spirit, like I talked about a second ago, that he simply wouldn't have understood because he's a rule follower. Like I'm gonna follow the law specifically. And like I said, Jesus is flipping this on its head. It would have been an incredibly deep conversation that these two had and one that I would have loved to be on the fly on the wall because Nicodemus, while he was a member of the Sanhedrin, while he was a Pharisee, while he was a Jew, he was also a teacher of the law, which meant that he had to know his stuff because he was the one out there making sure that people understood what it was they were and weren't supposed to be doing. Yep, that's a sin. Nope, that's not a sin. Yep, that's a sin. Nope, that's not a sin. He would have had to understand those things. It would have been an incredibly deep conversation. But then in verse nine, we see Nicodemus almost switch from having Jesus teach him what all of these things mean to a rather arrogant question in verse nine, where it says, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. Let me translate for you what, it actually, what he's actually asking. Translation of this is, how can this be true if I don't know it? That really seems to be what Nicodemus is asking here. Because like I said, Nicodemus is a student of the law. He's a teacher of the law. He's somebody who is consistently teaching and talking to people about the law. He, if anybody would have known what it is that the Bible says, what it is that, that the Old Testament rather said regarding faith and living and how to get to heaven, he would have known it. And all of a sudden Jesus is challenging this. And Jesus is talking through all these things, verses one through eight. And then verse nine, Nicodemus almost seems to call a timeout. It's like, hold up, timeout. How can this be true if I don't know it? How can this be true if I don't know it? Jesus in his response kind of doubles down on his arrogance, which is one of my favorite things that Jesus does. He says this, starting in verse 10, your Israel's teacher, teacher of the law, your Israel's teacher said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? He's telling them, look, I've tried. I've told you what, the, what it is that you have to do. I told you, remember in the temple courts when I was flipping stuff over and telling you guys were doing wrong? I told you. And you couldn't even believe the things that you see. 
So how are you going to expect to understand the things that you don't see? You don't even understand the physical. Forget about the spiritual. You can't get there because you're not even here yet. And that's what seems to be what Jesus is consistently saying to him. So after this exchange between Jesus and and Nicodemus, John then re-explains to his audience how to enter the kingdom of God. John re-explains to his audience then how to enter in to the kingdom of God. Because I think John is taking down these notes and he wrote out the story and that sort of thing. And John seems to be saying, hold on, okay. So that's the last we see of Nicodemus. John is gonna offer clarity now to his audience who read through this entire account between Jesus and Nicodemus. And he re-explains it to his audience using the single greatest verse for describing the gospel in all of scripture in 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's almost like the speaker here, it's almost like John here is clarifying for us as the readers what just went down. And it's like, hey, okay, I know this is hard for you. This is hard for a teacher of the law. So I know that this is hard for you. So let me be frank. God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die so we wouldn't die a spiritual spiritual death but have life forever. That's what's, that's what's happening. So to sum up everything that just happened with Nicodemus, this is what Jesus is telling us for this. And beyond that, in verses 17 and 18, two of the most overlooked verses in all of scripture because of where they fall after 16, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So John continues to clarify for us about what this means. Like, like remember when, when Nicodemus was struggling with Jesus's answer for like everything? Well, in order for him to have eternal life, he needs to believe. And we need to believe that Jesus was God's one and only son who died on the cross so we wouldn't be condemned. John makes it incredibly clear for us. If you don't believe that God sent his son to conquer death on our behalf, then you continue to stand condemned. It's it's, It's clear as day in verses 17 and 18. That if you do not believe, you continue to stand condemned. 16, we love, it's flowery, it's Jesus, it's man, God loves us so much and all of those things. Then 17 and 18 is our responsibility to it, is our, our, our reaction to it. Do you indeed believe? John makes it clear. If you don't believe that God sent his son to conquer death on our behalf and you continue to stand condemned, you continue to be guilty. You continue to have to pay the debt of your sin. But if you do believe in what Christ did, then you've been saved. The guilt and punishment and debt are completely and totally gone, erased. The things that you did, the things that you will do today, the things that you will do forever, gone, done, erased. Because God so loved the world. John concludes this section with a uh, a teaching about light and darkness, starting in verse 19. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, 
light that came into the world is obviously Jesus. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. We first saw this conflict between light and dark back in John chapter one, for those of you who started with us uh, all the way back there, it's in verses four and five, where it says, John says of Jesus, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We talk about this idea of light and dark, right? And there's a light, but people love the dark. I heard an interesting statistic uh, earlier this week. I heard a statistic that said that 51% of men, women, you're off the hook today. 51% of men hold on to a secret that nobody else knows that if it came to light would have catastrophic repercussions in their personal and professional lives. 50%. That means there's 150 dudes in here, 75 of you, if your secret came to light, whatever that secret is, your family would be crushed by it and your job would be crushed by it. Your life would be over. Simply because we have decided to love darkness rather than light. And I'm not trying to condemn everybody in here, just 75 of you. I'm not trying to condemn anybody, obviously. What I'm trying to say is, hey, there is darkness and we as humans love the darkness. But simply stated, man, there is light that we are supposed to cling to, that we are supposed to love. But evil people prefer darkness rather than light. We try to hide our sinful actions because when non-believers see a degradation and corruption with clarity, they will likely condemn it. That's how Christians got the title hypocrites. It's because of the idea, not because we're sinful people, but because we're sinful people who pretend to like the light. We live in darkness, but pretend to cling to the light. And when things like that happen, and then that, that secret, whatever it is, and I'm sure there's a statistic for women too, I'm sure it's higher than us guys. I'm sure, I'm sure though. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sure though that if the church decided to get real about clinging to light rather than darkness, that people would be more willing to come in here. People would be more willing to live in the light. People would be more willing to experience God on a regular basis simply because we decide to live with authenticity. We haven't decided to cling to the darkness. We've de decided to, to cling to the light. And the nice thing is, going back to our last point that John re-explains to his audience, John's audience is us. We are part of John's audience. And so because of that, we can be born of spirit. We get to be born again because of the fact that God loves you. Because of the fact that God loves you. I don't know where you're at today in terms of faith. I don't know if you've been to church for the last 80 years of your life. I don't know if today's your first day stepping foot into a building, church building. Wherever it is that you fall on that spectrum, I think we need to continue to recognize that 
God loves us completely and totally where you are at. There is nothing you can do to make him love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. It doesn't matter if you have followed every single law and every single command that Jesus put forth. It doesn't matter if you have broken every single one of those. His love for you does not change. Evidenced by John 3.16. As you're uh, getting ready to go, I just want to share a quick story with you real quick, and we'll end with this. Um, I was a teenager at one point in my life. I know, crazy. I didn't skip those years. And uh, I was 17 years old. And uh, I had gone to the fair, the fair, Merced, it's a real big deal, okay? The Merced fair was a real big deal, especially for high school students, a little bit of freedom, right? I remember even junior high, like going and running around and all this perceived freedom. Um, but when I was 17, you know, I could drive there and my friends could drive there and my parents didn't have to go and all that stuff. So we went, uh, me and my best friend Caleb went and uh, we uh, did what most kids did who grew up where I did was if you go to the fair, then you pretend to uh, be a farmer. Um, and so if you ever wanted to see me wear Wranglers, build a time machine. Um, and so we went to the fair and um, we had a good time. We had, there were some other friends there. There were some girls there. Um, none that I was interested in. I've only been interested in one my entire life. I don't know where she is, but she's here. Um, you could check the truth on that later. But um, so we went to the fair and man, my best friend, Caleb, uh, he is just infatuated with this girl, right? And for whatever reason, I know the reason, uh, we went to this secluded spot where they, during the day, they showed uh, uh, animals. That's how much I belonged in Wranglers. Uh, animals, I don't know, chickens, whatever they showed. And um, they're sitting, Caleb and this girl are sitting on the bleachers there and they're talking and I'm up. There's like three of us up in the corner over here, just like giggling, joking around, whatever, right? And all of a sudden I look over and I watched my best friend get his first kiss a couple rows away. And I was like, yeah, woo, right? I did the like, typical obnoxious, like a 17-year-old kid thing. Um, and uh, and so Caleb was staying the night at my house that night. And so we came back to my house and he's over the moon. He's geeking out over the whole thing, right? And all he's talking about is this girl. Um, and so I was like, hey, she lives like a mile from me. Uh, should we sneak out and go to her house so you can talk to her more? Um, and, uh, and so... <laughs> and so we did just that. And so normally at my house, I didn't have a big room, so we... Uh, we, we would sleep in the living room, right? And so we did the dumb thing of like, oh, we'll just stuff some pillows under there and we'll sneak. It's like 1230 at night. And uh, so we, we said, okay, well, how are we gonna get out of here with our parents not hearing the car start? So we throw his car into neutral and just like push it down my driveway. <laughs> and we push it down the street a little bit so they can't hear a car start. And then we get in, we start it up and we went over there and it had been legitimately maybe a minute and a half, right? Like we're still outside their house. Caleb was having a conversation with this girl between a screen, right? Um, and all of a sudden I feel my phone vibrate in my pocket. And I was like, that's weird. No one calls me except my parents. Oh, hey. Um, and so I answer the phone and man, my mom on the other end of the phone, no, it was my dad on the other end of the phone. He was like, 
where are you? Like, ah, that's not a standard greeting, Dad. Um, where are you? So I told him, and I was like, I was like, oh, we just decided to go for a drive. Obviously, told him the truth, right? Decide we just want to go for a drive. We're bored, so we left. He's like, get home now. I'm like, okay, not a standard salutation, Dad, but okay. Um, so we got home, and we didn't have the conversation that night. He said, go to bed. If I find out you guys left again, you're going to be in big trouble. I'm like, okay. So I had to get up early the next morning for work. I left for work, left Caleb there, didn't see my parents, and left Caleb to the wolves. And so I left, and uh, about 11 o'clock, Caleb called me. He's like, hey, man, just wanted you to know I'm just leaving your house. I'm like, it's 11 o'clock, bro. What did you do? He said, oh, I was hanging out with your parents for the last couple hours. Like, your mom made me waffles. It's like... What? Like, I'm worried I'm going to get disowned here and my mom's making you waffles? Are you kidding me right now? So I say, okay, well, we need to get our story straight. What did you, what did you tell her? And he was like, he goes, oh, I just told her the truth. Like, you did what? <laughs> How could you tell her the truth, man? And so he's like, yeah, I just told her the truth. And after that, like, she made me waffles. Like, congratulations, bro. So I came home after work and I remember coming in and sitting down and, uh, my mom and my dad were both there and they were like, hey, so tell me what happened last night, right? I'm sure they were trying to trap me, but <laughs> checkmate to me. Um, and so I had already talked to Caleb and said, well, and so I told the truth. Um, and I remember being there and my dad saying, my dad saying, hey, that was a really dumb decision you guys made last night. Like, what happens if you guys would have gotten into a car accident? And in my head, I'm probably thinking we would push the car most of the way, dad. It wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but... <laughs> What would have happened if you guys got into a car accident? You know, I don't know. You know, what would have happened if something would have happened to Caleb and we were responsible for him? What then? I don't know. You know, and he did all the, the I don't knows. But then at the end of it, he, you know, told me I was grounded or whatever. I was probably grounded for a week. And um, I remember him telling me, hey, I can't love you anymore. He said, but sometimes we just make stupid decisions and those decisions have repercussions. And so I tell that story, one, because it's a hilarious story and I haven't thought of it in a long time, but two, I tell that story because of the fact that when I came home, I recognized that telling the truth, living the light, and just being honest with my parents was a much better call than the alternative. And two, there was nothing I could have done to make my parents love me any less than they, than they currently and did love me. And at the same time, there's nothing that I could have done anymore. Like even if I would have snuck out and said, dad, I'm at the library studying, he wouldn't have loved me anymore. <laughs> but at the same time, he also wouldn't have loved me any less. The same way with my kids, we tell them every single day, hey, I love you, I love you, I love you. Do I have to tell them every day? No, they'll remember. Do I? Yes, absolutely. And so regardless of how long each of you have been sitting in church, whether today's the first time you're hearing it or it's the millionth time you're hearing it, it's a reminder to every single one of us that God loves you exactly where you're at. And there's nothing you can do that will make him love you any less or any more. And so your challenge in that this week is, man, just sit in that. Sit in how much God loves you. That you don't have to do one thing differently to make him love you any differently. But my bet is, is that as you recognize his love for you, you will want to do better. You will want to change. You will want to continue to become more righteous because God loves you. Let's pray. Father, I'm, man, thankful for a message that I just get to say, man, God loves you. 
I'm thankful for the people in this room that just get to feel and hear the fact that it doesn't matter what you did, what you're doing, what you're going to do, that they recognize that God just loves me. And that isn't a call to say, hey, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything. The reality is, is that as we enter into a relationship with you and as we enter into a relationship with your son, we should desire to change because of the love that is now known. So Father, just thank you for loving us totally and completely. God, I pray for those who maybe aren't part of the family of Christ yet. And if that's you in here today, and we just do some at the end of every one of our services, we pray the ABC. So with the head still bowed and eyes still closed, if you're saying, man, I just, I wanna be a part of that family that just says, my dad loves me. Just pray along with me and say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I admit it, God. I know that I messed up. And B, I, I believe that you sent your son on the cross to die for me. Because you love the world so much that you sent your only begotten son, your one and only son, to die on a cross on my account. And then I recognized that, that he died. And then he conquered that death. He rose again and ascended up to your right hand. And because of that, Father, because of your love for me, I want to choose to follow you every single day of my life. God, I can't do it without you. I can't white-knuckle my way to heaven. It's never going to happen. But God, reveling in your love, that's how I'm going to get there. So, Father, I pray that every single one of us today will revel in your love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.